Welcome to the Contemplative Science Podcast, brought to you by Monash University. This is the podcast for anyone interested in what lives on the overlap of cutting-edge science and ancient spiritual practices. From monks to neuroscientists, our expert guests join Dr. Mark Miller and Jamie Slevin to explain how contemplative practices work, and crucially, how they can help us improve our lives. Join us each week for Ancient Wisdom Made Practical. Hey everyone, and welcome to this episode of the Contemplative Science Podcast. My name is Jamie, and as always, I'm joined by my co-host, Dr. Mark Miller. Mark, how are you, mate? I'm doing very well, thank you. So today's a special episode because we don't have a guest, but we do get to talk about something we've been wanting to talk about for months and months. This is Mark's research, and it's interesting for a number of reasons. We cover depersonalization, we cover enlightenment, we cover phenomenology as an unclear basis for our science. And finally, we learn some seriously useful principles about the way we go about our practice. Mark, I'm going to introduce this by saying the following. The experiences we're going to be talking about in this episode refer to when our normal sense of self and our normal sense of perception start wobbling. But before we have that, I just want to ask, what is our normal sense of self or our normal sense of perception? Yeah, that's great. And wow, you know, like just the way you introduced this episode, what a thing to get in one in one podcast, right? I mean, we're going to cover a lot of good territory, I hope. So you're right. The research that I've been doing over the past few years is about this wobble in our self-experience. And the kind of interesting thing is, is that we can have wobbles that feel really good, you know, like the Buddhist contemplative training program, and actually lots of contemplative training programs aim at changing the way that we have our experience of ourselves and the way that we experience the world as a self. So some of those wobbles feel really, really good, and some of the wobbles, like the wobbles that we see, for instance, in disassociative disorders, depersonalization, derealization, are really dysphoric. They're really scary. They're weird. They're alien. And, you know, they're really super challenging. So part of our research is figuring out why, when the self-experience wobbles, is it sometimes feel really great and it's really wholesome and beneficial and sometimes can be scary and challenging. So then you asked, what is that ordinary sense of self? And I think that's a challenging question to answer straight from the hip because what a self is, is complex. But I think a good sort of starting definition would just be that ordinarily we are experiencing ourselves as sort of this whole, complete, enduring, persistent thing. You know, we take things that happen to us and things that we do, like we take our career and we take our relationship dynamics and we wear those in a way, and that makes up our felt sense of being a self. And that sense of being a whole self that's built from the things we do and what people think about us and also our feelings and our experiences, of course, that can be jeopardized in all sorts of ways. We jeopardize it in meditation, and of course, it can be jeopardized in all sorts of psychopathologies as well. And the only thing to add there really, or to re-clarify, is that that jeopardization can be interpreted as good or interpreted as bad. Yeah, and that's what we'll have to get into in this episode, right? That the way that those are jeopardized can be very different, but you're right. Changing our experience of being a self in whatever way we do it can have a whole range of experiences, whether those are positive or negative. So given that, I mean, you could just ask yourself, Jamie, like, what do you mean by being yourself most of the time? Like, sort of take your meditation student hat off for a second and like, what is it to be you? Like if I was, if we're on a first date and I'm like, who are you? Like, what do you say? I say something probably like, oh, I'm this person who does all this stuff. So I'm Jamie and I, this, I am this job and I am 
these relationships and I am these interests. Right, exactly. And our sex and our gender and our body. I mean, our body plays a big part of this. And also my emotional structure. You know, we do that all the time. Like if somebody acts a little bit funny, we say to them, hey, you're not like yourself today. You know, mm. we sort of reprimand each other. Like, hey, you're not behaving like you as this sort of thing that's supposed to persist through time. So I think that's a good, anyway, I think that's a good starting place to think about these wobbles is that we have a really ordinary sense of being a self, which is really anchored in this idea of a collection of certain characteristics that are persistent or consistent over time. Right, and I think you've just articulated that what is an ordinary sense of selfhood. We walk around and I am Jamie the banker or I am Jamie I'm young. And that is sort of what I think I'm hearing as the starting place. And the conversation we're about to have relating to the changes, both enlightened changes or pathological changes, refers to that initial state of affairs changing. Right, exactly. So here's the kind of cool thing about this research. And the really challenging thing about this research is that the phenomenology, the first person articulation of individuals' phenomenological experiences of late stage meditative practice development stuff, like the way it actually feels when this thing starts moving. And some of the reported experiences of people who are struggling with depersonalization of different orders, they sound very similar. That's the provocative starting point for this research. This is why there's this debate in the community, right? So for instance, both, you know, it's easy to find in the Buddhist literature, teachings like you are not the body. And then if you look at first personal accounts of disassociation, you hear people say, I don't feel like I am my body. I feel like, and it's scary. I feel like it's very weird. Like there's this body driving around and I'm not that. And it makes me really upset. Whereas the Buddhist practitioner is finding all of this joy and ease come from saying, wow, look, I'm not the body. Let me just give you two more quick. The other one is being an agent, right? In the Buddhist literature, we hear quite a lot of things about it's just the flow of cause and effect. And then you go over to the disassociative experiences and people are saying, I don't feel like I'm in control of my life. You also hear things about preference, you know? In the Buddhist tradition, you hear a lot about giving up preferences and giving up craving and desire. And then you go over to the disassociative community and you hear people saying, I feel like nothing matters anymore. Nothing is drawing me in the world. I mean, you could have really heard quite advanced meditators say something similar in a different context. And it would drop differently. They would say, nothing draws me anymore. I am equanimous. I'm at ease in my life. I no longer have these peaks and valleys of attraction and craving. I'm more at peace. And you hear the same thing, except for it's not peaceful for the people with disassociation experiences. It's like, oh my God, nothing calls me anymore. The world is flat. I feel completely alienated from my world. So there you go. Phenomenology on multiple, in multiple ways sounds, I mean, if you were only taking the phenomenology, if you're only taking the first person report, these sound almost identical, or at least you can find cases where they sound very similar. And it's hard to overestimate how provocative that is. But right. what we're talking about here are big experiences, big yeah. positive, big negative. These are either revelationary or genuinely scary. And yet Indeed. it seems like the phenomenology is the same, which raises the question, hence the paper and the research. Yeah. Are they similar processes? Because it seems very natural that something that produces the same phenomenology yeah. are very close together. You would imagine, yeah. well, yeah. maybe they're the same. Yeah. Or if they're not the same, maybe there was just a little bit of a wrong turn. Yeah. Right. Which opens the question, shit, maybe we need to tread incredibly carefully. Yeah. And maybe I'm just rolling the dice. Yeah. But 
Okay, so that's the first point. The second point is, this says something interesting about phenomenology as a basis for science. Yeah. Because usually we look at phenomenology very seriously. And in the first person sciences, like meditation, that's kind of the information we have to go off. It's not often we have access to the mechanics. Yeah. But if yeah. the phenomenology is the same and the experience is different, yeah. that opens the possibility that the mechanics might not be matching the phenomenology. Yeah. And if that's true, oh shit. Yeah, yeah. Oh man. And this is why this is such a fun project to be involved in, why I think it's so meaningful. You're right. We put a lot of stock into first-person experiences and the way that we're discussing those experiences, especially in sort of meditative community. But what's going on under the hood? And I think this is a great example where when you look under the hood, you realize that you can have what looks like from the outside to be very similar experiences be extremely different. And so the conclusion of our paper, and uh, we'll link the paper for anybody who wants to actually get into the nitty gritty of the research here, but the end result of our research is that we propose that disassociative disorders and the sorts of selfless experiences that we get through meditation are polar opposites. They're computationally exactly opposite from one another. Not only are they not related, they are opposites computationally, although they engender the same sorts of self-reports, which is kind of interesting. Although, like you said, one is euphoric, the other one is dysphoric. One of them feels super good and the other one feels super bad, but the way they describe them are the same, but computationally, they are extremely different. The natural question that arises is how can they be different computationally if the phenomenology is the same? Yeah. Which just speaks to my intuition, right? Yeah. That phenomenology tracks mechanic. Yeah, yeah. So we built our story up from a couple of recent accounts of depersonalization that are out that I think are good ones to follow. According to that recent research, depersonalization and derealization can be thought of as a kind of emotional airbag. You have a traumatic experience, you have a bunch of pain, you know, chronic pain, so like torture or just persistent volatility like hunger or being, you know, of course, war zones. No wonder we're seeing lots of disassociative disorders come out and be related to PTSD. So, you know, where you're under extreme duress, what the system can do to help protect you from that extreme duress is it can reduce the impact of the feeling of being under duress. So you have a kind of emotional airbag response. So what basically happens is, is the system, if it can't get out of that situation that's creating all this negative affect, that's creating all these suffering-filled emotions, basically the emotion system itself adjusts. So the emotion system itself gets suppressed and we can actually see this in the brain. So here's where you're looking a little bit under the hood. We can see core brain regions that are important for interceptive information being broadcast into the rest of our experience. They start losing connectivity and it starts being suppressed so that those areas, they give up their deep connectivity, which they normally have, and they stop producing as much impact on the rest of the brain. So really you can actually see emotional centers in the brain get dampened. So I think you can get the feel for that, right? Like you have incredible pain. Normally what that pain does is it gets you to move somewhere. That's what pain is for, right? Pain signals to you, this is no good, move. But what happens if you can't move? If you can't move and the pain persists, the system's really smart. What it does is it says, okay, well, there's no way out of this. It's a kind of hopeless situation. 
So the only way then to protect the system is to turn off the thing which is informing you that you're needing to move, because there's no point having that in play if you can't actually move. This is fascinating. So it's like there are two levels of defense mechanisms. The initial thing is the pain as the feedback which says move. But if that feedback is running and it doesn't work, the system right. is smart enough to say, okay, well, there's no point just sitting here and suffering in quite this way. It makes better, more sense to just turn down the volume. But, exactly. Okay. Right. But when right. someone's feeling in a negative way, I am having a dissociative experience. It doesn't feel good to have that connectivity turned off. It feels bad. It feels robotic. Yeah, right. So here's the nasty bit. So the system, and we lay this out computationally. I don't know how interesting it is to sort of bring it all on the table right now. And people can check out the paper if they want to see again. They want to see this sort of nitty gritty. But the nasty bit is, is that when this part of the affective system gets its volume turned down, I mean, that's such an apt way to say that, Jamie. That's exactly sort of the way that we think about it. When it gets its volume turned down, the side effect is you start to realize all of the ways that little micro adjustments in that affective system give us an ordinary sense of being a self and being in the world. The fact is, we tend to think about emotions as these big abstract things like happiness and sadness and anger. These are big categories, right? But that's not the only way that affectivity is playing itself out in our bodies and in our minds and our experiences of the world. We actually are having little micro valences all the time. You're all the time getting little pushes and pulls affectively that keep you in touch with the world. The world shows up as meaningful for you. Your attention is directed to parts of the world and repelled from parts of the world and you're subtly driven. Your expectations are suddenly modulated. All the time, you're subtly being guided in thousands of little ways by this affective resonance that you have with the world. Little things feel good and attractive. Little things feel bad and repulsive. That's happening all the time. So when that system gets turned off in order to protect you from this traumatic experience, you also lose that essential embodied equipment that keeps you feeling like you are in the world. So suddenly, just imagine now, okay? Just feel this phenomenologically. Things didn't call to you in the same way. They didn't provoke attraction. They didn't really push you away. So suddenly the world gets very flat. Can you imagine why that would make you feel an alien in the world? Suddenly all your cares and concerns, they lose their potency. Now you're just here. And the same thing with feeling like a self, like a big part of what it is to feel like a self in the world is this whole host of subtle emotional pushes and pulls that make you feel like you care about things, things matter to you. Like imagine you saw your partner and rather having the warm fuzzies that you always have when you see your partner, suddenly there's just nothing. So you're getting the visual experience of your partner, but you're not getting any of the regularly associated warm fuzzies. The fact is that that's a very different experience. And that's hard for us sometimes to feel for ourselves. But if you have this experience, it's very strong, that experience. So strong, in fact, that this has been proposed to be one of the things that leads people to have Cupcross syndrome, which is you think people are dead or you think people have been taken over by aliens. That's a really serious disorder. And one of the most recent accounts of that is it's because you see your loved one, but you don't have the affective resonance with them. And so the brain has to make a best guess about why is it that they look like themselves, but I don't have any of the feels. And the brain comes up with its best guess about what that could mean. And it grabs science fiction ideas. It thinks, oh, it's a robot. Oh, the FBI has replaced them. Oh, it's an alien has taken over my loved one. That's the only, 
the brain's sort of smart and stupid at the same time, right? That's the only possible outcome is they look like them, but I'm not getting the feel for them. So something critical must have gone wrong. Yeah. And to give a sense of how distressing that must be. I mean, I've certainly had the experience of being seriously jet lagged and waking up in a weird time zone and there's new colors and lights. And like, there's a wall between me and the world. And that's just tiredness, but it's quite distressing. Just to feel the the disconnect. And the way I describe disconnect is I can still see, I can still hear, but the anchors, the typical normal anchors where things represent meaning, I'm just, I can't even engage with. And all of a sudden you feel like a robot. Now, the interesting thing there is you've just described something that sounds horrible, but in a different conversation, you could have described exactly the same phenomenology in glowing terms. And this is why there's the confusion because that same phenomenology can roughly speaking be ascribed to both the insight experiences and the disassociative ones. So before we go further, what's happening mechanically that's different when we're talking about insight experiences? Yeah, good. Let me just say one thing before we go there. So let's just take that as our next move. But, you know, you mentioned jet lag, Mm. and I think we don't even have to go there. You know, most people have experiences with depersonalization or derealization experiences sometimes in their life. One of the reasons computationally I think that's scary is because the affective system evolved to help us navigate complex, dangerous environments. I mean, that's why we have an affective system. So when it goes quiet, of course, it's a weird place to be because that's part of what's helping us navigate the complexities in the world. It's like having a, it's like having a core messaging system that's evolved to keep you safe suddenly goes quiet. I mean, that's very weird and painful. I guess a question that arises then is with meditation, my understanding of it is it gives you the tools to lean into emotions to a greater degree, to see things, emotions as these passive comers, which in other words is a way of saying, I'm more able to let the big emotions into the house. But what we're saying is that after a certain amount of meditation, apparently people find themselves less able to have these emotions come in and therefore the system quietens down. No, no, wrong way to go, actually. Okay, so now we've got the sort of depersonalization story out in a sketch. The big problem is, is that you have a kind of trauma. Normally that pain should get you to run or task switch or reframe, but for whatever reason, the pain is persistent. So the system does something kind of smart. It turns the volume down. Unfortunately, when it turns its volume down in order to protect you from that one thing, the world gets weird. Mm -hmm. Now what's happening in meditation? I think this is the coolest point to start with. When you look under the hood of advanced meditators who are having these kinds of experiences, the affective core networks in the brain, they're not smaller and less communicative. They're bigger than most people and much more communicative. Right. So right away, we we have a polarity in terms of what's going on under the hood. In one, those systems are weaker and smaller and less effective. In the others, they're actually bigger than most people, more connected and pumping their power to a higher degree, okay? Which makes sense given the usual perception of meditation, which is you're more able to deal with these emotions, That's right. right. Well, and, and actually, a big part of the meditative program, lots of meditative programs, is to be aware of what's going on in the body. You're doing a lot of interceptive access work in meditation. You're doing body scans. You're saying, what's going on at the finger? You're feeling your nervous system. When pain comes up, you're right. You're turning into the pain. You're learning about pain. Mm. When hunger comes up, you're turning into hunger. You're learning about hunger. When joy comes up, we're turning into joy. We're learning about joy. You're doing a lot of body mapping stuff. So of course, 
you would expect the affective systems in the brain to be more robust and more communicative because you've spent all of this time being mindful of what it feels like to have body experiences. Right. And if we're saying that the when, when in the dissociative case, the volume is turned down, we're saying that's because effectively there isn't the capacity to deal with the pain anymore, right? And we haven't got the option to run. So in that case, you would expect, well, our cup has actually got bigger. Our capacity has got bigger. But that feels obviously different to what we're saying in the dissociative case. That's good. I'd like to also note, kind of cool, you can tell when somebody has moved out of a disassociative season, because again, like for for most people who go through DPD and DPR, they're transient. So for the vast majority of people, they come and they go. You know, you can work your way out of these things. There are styles of perception that come, they persist, and they pass. One of the ways you can tell when it passes is you can look to see if these core affective parts of the brain have started to grow in connectivity again. So it's interesting, you know, you would know if somebody got through that by having the kinds of signatures that late-stage meditators all have. If you've been meditating for some time, you have all of the look of somebody who's specifically outside of these states. But why then, why are you saying the same sorts of things that you would sometimes hear people with dissociative disorders say. So here's the second part of our research. We looked specifically at the Buddhist paradigm. I think it's a nice place to look if you're a researcher because it's really well thought out and the Buddhists love lists and they love the sort of analytic engagement with these things, which is nice for scientists. And in the Buddhist program, changing our experience of and changing our relationship to affective states valence in particular, which is part of this affective tuning dynamic, is sort of one of the big things that you're doing as part of the meditative project. So one of the things that's said, you know, in lots of the Buddhist teaching manuals, lots of the suttas, is how to be mindful of the body, but also how to be mindful of feeling states, of vedana, of valence states. This is specifically what goes quiet to some degree in depersonalization. So it's interesting to see the Buddhist program also puts a lot of weight on experiencing these states and changing our relationship with these states. So what we're doing is we're being mindful of these states in all sorts of important ways. So what we propose, and I hope what we show in our paper, is that you have a change in experience of these emotional states, but the end result isn't that they get turned off. But in fact, they continue to run, but we change our relationship to them. It sounds like to me, the difference between the depersonalization state and the state you've just described is one of them is stubbing your toe. And it's such a painful experience that your pain signals between your foot and your brain just go turned down. Your body's response to the stimuli is, this is too painful, let's stop. Whereas in the insight meditative state, it's not that the pain stops, but all of a sudden we attach a different meaning to it. The lens through which we feel it is different. And therefore, ironically, despite the fact we're reporting the same kind of phenomenology, one of which has the quality of too painful turned down and the other has the quality of, oh, it's fine for that to run, but I'm suffering it less somehow. Yeah, so exactly right. What we show is that lots of these processes, especially emotional processes, they're really driving behavior in an important way. Evolutionarily, that's why they grew. They grew to drive our behavior in important ways. But the more that you look at your own experiences, yeah, and in our language, the more that you model these emotional experiences, the more you recognize they can be right or they can be wrong. You can have jealous signals in the body. 
that are the result of your upbringing and your sort of insecurities and all of your attachment style stuff, but they don't actually track reality in a comprehensive way. This is why it's kind of cool to have meditators as friends, right? It's great to have meditators as friends because they tend to be the people who say to you things like, oh, the body is feeling jealous, you know, or there is some jealous experiences I'm having. So I want to talk to you about what's real. Of course, I'm not taking that wholesale to be the case. Rather, I know I get lots of feelings and sometimes those feelings are accurate and sometimes those feelings aren't accurate. I'm really aware that this is just information in the system. And I'm not going to just let that drive my system, like accuse you and criticize you or whatever else, but rather I'm going to use that as information in the system to maybe spark a conversation with you. So that's a big difference, right? That's the difference between affect driving the system and you using that affectivity as information in the system in order to make decisions. Yeah, there's an extra step, right? In the first instance, there's no gap. Emotion says X, you do X. Right. In the second case, you're stepping back slightly. So it's not that there isn't that information anymore. Right. No, no, no. Right. There right. is that information. Right. But now I have this sort of third party bird's eye view. Right, right. So this is one of our hypotheses. If you look at Antoine Lutz's work, this is phenomenal for this. I mean, this is part of, this is a core part of his research program. The degree to which we can be mindful of, the degree to which we can model our own emotional reactions is the degree to which we understand that we are not identical with those reactions the degree to which we recognize that those affective changes are just information in a system to be used or not used in relationship to the whole context. So there's the no self-experience starting to blossom for that meditator. You know that you are not identical with these emotional experiences, but they continue to play a role in giving you a felt sense of being in the world. They continue to give information for how you are in the world or how you should move in the world, but rather than strongly identifying with them, you now recognize them as information in the system. And we have a longer story here, but actually this opens up all sorts of new control opportunities. So rather than being driven around by these basic evolutionary structures, we have more freedom to move in ways that are more skillful and more beneficial for ourselves and for others. But someone exactly. undergoing that experience might say, I don't identify with the feeling anymore. Right. Which right. ironically, exactly. Which is, which is just a comment, really, on I now have a more bird's eye view, a more third-party view. Whereas right. this person who's disassociated in this moment doesn't say, oh, it's still running. I can still hear it. I just have a third-party view. No, they say, I can't hear it. And in it being turned down, everything else is being turned down too. And that's freaky. Let's just then talk about why meditation can particularly cause that agitation. Right. So, okay, that's the right last part of this conversation. The last question is, can meditation techniques and skills and ability development lead to these things? And the answer is yes. Yes. And we have a good story for why that can be the case, at least one reason. Now, what I don't want to do here is I don't want to say this is the only way meditation leads to these problems, but here's one way given what we've said already today. What we've said about depersonalization is if you have a big emotional experience that's challenging and then you can't get away from it, the system has a sort of cascading failure, at which time the best thing it can do is it can turn its volume down on those affective systems to try to get you out of that pain, okay? I don't know if you already hear it, Jamie, but like meditation is more or less an optimal place to engender just those sorts of experiences, especially if you don't know that you're not supposed to pay attention to the most painful thing in your life. Let's say you sit down 
and you inappropriately think that what you're supposed to do in meditation is turn towards the maximally traumatic experience. So a big traumatic experience comes on board and you've either misread or been misguided that what you're supposed to do is attend powerfully, right? So now what you're doing is you're turning the volume way up on the painful experience and you are actively not moving. I shut non-reactive. So you've stopped yourself from being able to task switch. You've stopped yourself from getting away. And now what you're doing is turning the volume way up on a painful experience. That is more or less an optimal space to engender just the kinds of self-trauma that can lead to depersonalization. Because what you're effectively doing is taking something painful and then refusing to engage in your body's natural feedback right. mechanism that says move. It's right. the equivalent of putting your hands on a hot stove and then having top-down expectations that the thing to do is not to move your hands. Right. right. So now what has to happen at some stage right. is your body goes, shit, we're not moving. Right. Let's just turn the, the pain signals down in our hands. Right, but you're still burning. That's the problem, you're right? You're still burning, burning, but you're not you're not experiencing it anymore. Right, exactly. Then exactly. the question the question is here about window of tolerance. Because right. often in meditation, it's useful to turn towards painful things right. and get to know those emotions. How do we know what's too much? Right. So the first takeaway message I'd like anybody listening to this to have is mindfulness meditation isn't only a matter of turning into the challenge that avoidant strategies are real strategies. It's a mistake to think that what you're being directed to is to only look strongly at the challenging phenomenon and just sort of grit your teeth and bear down and let yourself update relative to that information. That's, I think, a really dangerous, and I don't think it's an appropriate way to be using these skills. Avoidant strategies are real strategies. And you know this research is starting to come out more and more now but like, for instance, exposure therapy is one of the reasons why you might think mindfulness of challenging experiences could be useful. You know, exposure therapy, you take a little bit of the poison in order to get stronger and better understand the problem. And, and indeed, that helps a lot of people. Some of the new research shows, though, it mostly helps people who tend to avoid. So if you're the kind of person who tends to suppress and avoid your problems, then having a skillful coach or meditation teacher say, hey, you know, let's look a little bit at that thing. Actually, that's a way to often get better. But if you're the kind of personality who's obsessive about the problem, who ruminates about the negativity a lot, then being told by a coach or being told by a meditation teacher, let's look at all the problems acutely and turn the volume way up on them, actually leads to pathology rather than away from it. So for those types of personalities, you want lots of avoidant strategies to come into play, like self-soothing, focusing on gratitude, developing the heartful qualities like love and kindness and compassion. I mean, if you've just had a loss and you're in grieving, that might not be the optimal time to meditate on death. Maybe it is, maybe it is for your personality structure, but it's not completely obvious that you should be just jumping right in and thinking about death. Maybe the better thing to do is to start looking at some of the things that are working in your life. Look for the other reasons that you're grateful. Start giving yourself some of that robust resilience qualities by turning on to the good. So like you said there, you've already sort of charged us. The big thing to take into account with whether you're going towards or you're going away is going to have to do with this idea of window of tolerance, which is a pretty hot topic today. Window of tolerance just is 
when your arousal system is within that window, you're safe. So outside on the lower end is like sluggish and lethargic and depressed. And out the other end, of course, is anxious and panicky. So basically you want to make sure that you're monitoring where you are in this window of tolerance. And as long as you're within the window of tolerance, then the sort of the, the catch-all that we're starting to see come up now in the research is you're safe to be engaging with negative data. But when you feel that throws you way out of your window of tolerance, then that's a good example of where you might be on a little bit uncertain territory where your practice might be potentially leading to more problems than good. Yeah, to use the analogy of the gym, if the weights are the negative emotions and the bigger the weight, the more negative the emotion, no one in their right mind would say, go lift the heaviest weight and if it's sore, keep on lifting. Because you put your back out. I know. I know. What are we doing? How are we doing this? I mean, we know it so clearly when it comes to the body. And then we overlook that the mind is more nuanced, more complex, more subtle, probably more fragile. But we're willing to just do extreme things to our mind without thinking anything about it. It's also worth saying the type of people who take meditation very seriously tend to be the types of personalities that could do with task switching as opposed to more ruminating. Like I'm involved in a couple of meditation communities and I'm projecting a little bit because I'm like this, but most of the meditators I know would do well to take the advice of back off the thing a little bit as opposed to triple down. This is extremely hard because a lot of the manuals that we revere make it sound like we have to have this big fire for this thing and you should be just throwing yourself wholesale at it. But to tell you the truth, and again, this is just my opinion, slow is smooth and smooth is fast. And cutting out some of our type A neuroticism when it comes to meditative development, I think is a really beneficial and a really wholesome thing, especially now that we're starting to get good evidence that lots of people are having challenging experience coming out of their practice. And if you look at any of the manuals that are being written right now about trauma-sensitive approaches to mindfulness and meditation, this is exactly what they're espousing. The only rule really is to not push, to start becoming really sensitive to your own window of tolerance, and then to find your edge at that window of tolerance and grow in systematic, progressive ways that you are willing to back up when you feel the heat get turned up. And if you're practicing in that way, if you're not pushing and you're careful of your window of tolerance and you're exploring just at your edge, I think you're cutting out a lot of the things that we're starting to see from the research puts you anywhere near the danger zone. And you know, like just one thing, you know, like I've been practicing now for 20 years and I I am definitely guilty of all of these things that now I'm sort of railing against. I was the super fiery practitioner doing super long retreats, you know, living abroad for years at a time doing this thing wholesale. And I've got to tell you, like just from my own experience, of course, there's a lot to be said for being passionate. But if you really are passionate and you want to get there optimally fast, you should do it at a measured and progressive and in a safe way. Because I have definitely had the experience where I pushed too hard, had a maladaptive suboptimal outcome, and then had to take the weeks or months that it takes to unravel before I could start practicing again. So like, am I better or worse if I push for three months and then I have to do triage for six months and then I can start up again? Or could I have done something more progressive over nine months, had none of the repercussions and had a really you know, fruitful and beneficial practice? 
It's also just worth saying this keeps you honest in your intentions. Because if your intentions are effectively like spiritual or emotional escapism, right, and that's really what you're after, you're going to find it very difficult to be moderate because there's such an exaggerated carrot and stick, which is why having to say, no, I'm going to go slowly, I'm going to go optimally, really keeps you on your meditative toes. Like, why am I doing it? Is this something I'm doing because it's a meaningful project or is it because I want the sugar, the perceived sugar of a (laughs) super one-sided? You just want the flashback experience. Yeah, because if you're really serious about being well, then you should take care of yourself. Mm. I love Janusz Wellen, who we're going to have on, I think, the leader of Deep Mindfulness Collective, uh, which fantastic meditation community with really great teachers and teachings. I love him saying, you know, he says this quite a lot. He's like, there's no points for bearing down. There's all points for self-love. I mean, if you're really serious about being well and coming to meditation in order to gain a huge degree of well-being, then you should be starting from this self-love perspective where you you learn about where your edges are and you don't just throw yourself over those edge every chance you get. I'm really glad we got the opportunity to run that. I think it's the single most important message for the majority of meditators I know, including myself. And I think it's an awesome area of research and we'll see where the research goes, right? Because this isn't over in one paper. No, exactly. And there's lots of reasons why these things come up and there's lots of ways they might be related. This was just one of the ways they were related. And what makes me excited about this research is there's real world advice that drops straight from it. Everybody can check out the paper. The paper is out if you're interested in seeing the nitty gritty. And yeah, I think that's good. This has been the Contemplative Science Podcast. And as always, we'll be back next week. So thank you for listening to the Contemplative Science Podcast. We're available on the podcast app of your choice, as well as on YouTube as a video podcast. If you're interested in exploring the rich landscape between science and contemplative practices, check out Monash University's Centre for Consciousness and Contemplative Studies. 